Welcome to the Allies Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Farino. Hi, this is Carmen Farino, and welcome to another edition of the Allies Podcast. Uh, I am pleased as punch to have Jeremy Abbott, the publisher of Scientific American, with me. Uh, Jeremy, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited as eggnog to be here. Lovely. See, there you go. If we only had a rum. Um, We've known each other. I was doing the math uh, last night. We've known each other, I think, from either 1987 or 88. I think you you started at Rutgers, I think, one of those years. And, you know, I knew you first as a musician. I think the thing that kind of blew me away about you was the talent that you have um, there and then later on saw all of the other kind of accomplishments that you had. So I kind of want to start there. What drew you to music and, and why do you see that as such an important part, not just of your personal life, but, but in, in a lot of ways you've, you've worked it into your professional life? I think I discovered music was a place I could go and be myself, uh, improvise, I was actually a very shy kid, which people always find surprising because as a, as the publisher of Scientific American, I have so many public appearances to make and I have to speak at many events and shake hands with people. But I'm, I think deep down I'm a shy person and I, I loved being able to um, maybe hide in music. So mm-hmm. when I, I was not a particularly athletic uh, child, although I you know, loved to do sports, I was kind of shied away from that. I would mm-hmm. go home after school. I, I, would, I couldn't wait to get back into my room and play my guitar for sometimes five or six hours. Um, my parents had to kind of, you know, say, come down for dinner now. And I, I was just, I just, I loved it. I mean, I, you know, Friday after school, uh, you know, I, I was a, a social kid, but I really, I just loved playing music. And, and I think that's when people ask me, you know, how did you get so technically proficient at the guitar? Because I played it all the time, mm. <laughs> and um, I I I, I kind of loved that, and I found you know when I when I played music I could connect with people uh, in in a way that was satisfying to me, and I, I, I there was always music playing in my house. I had a dad who loved jazz and classical music and opera, mm. and a brother who loved big bands, and I used to hear all this music and kind of you know discover what could be accomplished on something as simple as the acoustic guitar. And I kind of made, you know, it's, it was an instrument that I thought had a lot of possibilities. So um, that's what drew me to music, I, I think. Well, do, that, that idea of being an, uh, an extroverted introvert, which is funny. It's kind of like a thing you have a switch you flip on. I, I relate to that a lot. Um, I'm, I'm kind of known as somebody who, once I get saturated with um, kind of being around people, I'll literally just kind of disappear. You won't know where I went and I go away because I, it, it, it wipes me out, exhausts me, even though I might look like I'm very outgoing and gregarious. Does that, um, does that serve a purpose for you to be able to kind of flip that switch on and off? Because there is a public side of music and there's a private side of music and there's a public side of the role that you have as a publisher and a private side. Um, is that balance important to you? Yeah, I think so. I think it, uh, like you, when I have to be 
the face of a brand or the voice of of, of a project or a program. Um, yeah, it takes it just takes energy, and to me, it it it's it's accomplishing something where I can um, be a little more in control. And I think maybe introverts think about being out of control in a public setting. But you know, by by being a performer, I kind of felt it gives me some control. It's a it's a way to connect with people where I don't feel in some ways threatened by the by the by the environment, but a little more in control of the environment. And then mm-hmm. then going back and kind of taking a breath, recharging in a more introverted way, you know, that's that's important to me. Yeah, I think there is a balance. And and to me, people always ask me in in business settings, to what do you attribute your your kind of career tra- trajectory and, and, and rise to being a publisher of a media brand. And I actually say, you know, performing is something where you learn how to affect a response in an audience. Mm. And you can kind of let that happen in, let yourself improvise in, in, in that way and connect emotionally with people. And then, as you know, it kind of takes a lot of work and it <laughs> kind of spends you. And, and then you're, you need to recharge in a very solitary space. Yeah. And you know, I, I was listening to Springsteen on Broadway, um, kind of strangely, almost obsessively, not even so much for the music, but for his, the interstitial pieces. And he, you know, he talks about, you know, here, here's what it takes. I've got 60,000 people in an audience and I have to somehow create an experience. And I was, I've seen you, um, you know, both play your music and I've seen you on stage with the job. And there's something that I wanted to, to ask, cause I think it, it happens with me. The stage fright thing tends to go away very quickly because if you establish a rapport with the audience, it doesn't feel like you're alone on stage. It actually feels like you're just much closer to them. And once that kind of nervousness or that, uh, that barrier is removed, it's a kind of intimate experience being up on stage and talking or playing music. Do you, do you find that? I, I couldn't agree more. It is, it is a, it's a, it's a personal intimate connection, no matter how big the audience. And I always, when I have to do a public event, I love, I, I not just love, I need to speak to um, people a little bit beforehand and just get a, get a quick, quick, a quick little connection, hear what they're thinking. It just gives me a little, uh, you know, a little glimmer of we are connected together, and and it, and, it, and certainly yes, you become it's it, it is an intimate experience. I think there's a desire to connect with people, absolutely. Well, and and there's a thing I've noticed that you do. I've seen you I've seen you do this before. It's it's you'll find a little edge of a joke, and our friend Dan Rodriguez does this too. Whenever he's on stage, he'll find a little thing, and and once he does that, the barrier collapses. So I had to do a. a series of uh, interviews at the Prince Theater in Philadelphia. So it's a big, it's a cavernous place. And, you know, there's five chairs up there. And I walked out there and said, uh, you know, the Prince Theater, I thought it would be more purple. And, you know, you, it, it just immediately wiped out whatever kind of barrier there was and we could move forward. And I think that's important um, to remove barriers because, we're, you know, the Allies podcast is, a, is a, an attempt to reach across aisles and to take people who would be naturally resistant to talking with somebody on the other side 
and pull them together and talk about the the ways that were more similar. So how do you do that? How do you how do you carve out each person that comes to you with Scientific American, you know, whatever company it is, they have a problem they're trying to solve. You know, they're trying to bridge a gap. They're trying to make a connection with an audience. How do you approach that when there might be resistance? It's a great question. Um, first off, using humor is not just a, a fun piece of what I do, and, and I think what you do too, but it is essential. Uh, you know, using you, that, that human connection that I talked about that I kind of need to have with an audience even before I go on stage or have to make a big presentation, you know, like, like you, like you do, I'd say that, that, that sharing a laugh is, is so important. And I know there have been books about this, about you know, business leaders that use humor tend to be more successful. And I couldn't agree more. To laugh with someone is such an intimate experience. And to your question about you know, how do we connect with people, particularly people you know, in, in, in the sciences, I mean, I'm going to go back to something you actually said to me in some notes before we started this discussion. You know, similarities between science and music or maybe you know the 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 arts and science this idea of connecting and searching for a universal language is very important hmm. and one thing that I've, I've i've been in musician circles and i've been in scientist circles for so much of my career and i will say that when when musicians get together and they speak that language of music there is such a bond that you you know it could be people from different countries and different cultures and all walks of life get together and when you're sharing music you don't see any you you are so connected and i would say the same thing happens you know when i'm at a scientific conference and i'm not a scientist by training though i minored in i minored in meteorology i'm not a scientist i i love you know the idea of storytelling in science which is what my brand does but i I see scientists gather and they get so passionate and, and there mm. are very few barriers. I mean, you think about global science and labs across the, the world sharing information and certainly technology has enabled more of that. And that is certainly the, the ethos of our time. But um, these are two, these are two kind of roles in life that are, are searching for a universal language. And I, mm -hmm. I, I there's, there's others as well. So, um, I kind of start with that and, and you know, my day-to-day -day job, I look after the commercial success of a brand. I certainly work with the board of editors and we make sure we have a strategy to make our, keep our brand relevant. But when we're look, working with a big partner or a sponsor uh, or looking to do something new, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to get to the heart of they want to accomplish something and perhaps tell their story and again, connect in the universal way. And so those are the points of entry for any conversation, any program, that to me, you know, uh, that's where you find the passion of it first, and then you go through the details and everything is, you know, uh, like 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 public performances. Once you feel that passion and that camaraderie, anything goes. Then you can really mm -hmm. improv and, I think, be be productive. Well, that's that's what I saw with, um, you know, if you look at Coltrane um, and you and uh, you think about jazz. Uh, the the idea of knowing you know your instrument knowing your scales so that you could throw it out because once you know it backward and forward once you understand the language you're free to mix it up and change it 
And I think there was a program that Wynton Marsalis had done with children. And he said, um, you know, in a lot of ways, when I'm playing my instrument, I'm doing math. I'm seeing patterns and I'm adding things and I'm subtracting things. And I'm, I'm looking at ways of, of framing that. And I think a lot of kids found kind of, it kind of demystified the music side. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of that, you know, the, the concept of the music of the spheres, you know, that the universe has a, has a melody to it that you can actually listen to. Um, that seems more important than ever because, you know, if, I know I'm bouncing around, but if you, you know, Dave Grohl said the other day, like, uh, I don't need to talk about politics in my show. If you come to a Foo Fighters show, I'm going to take you out of that. And it seems to me it's easier for people to bridge their differences in music than it is in lots of other parts of their life. So why do you think that is? That's a great question. Uh, again, I think it, I think it pulls people toward that universal language, the idea of, of expressing something. I, I think that maybe we've deviated so much from things that we can share together in this, what we, what we, you know, uh, see as this polarized universe, this, mm. uh, the us, the, the hyper on steroids, us and themism mm -hmm. that seems to pervade everything we do these days, you know, a, an experience like music, which, yeah, you're right. The, 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 it has order and it has freedom. It's got that yin and yang that, that Coltrane always talked about, you know, being able to knowing the rules and the boundaries so that you, you can, you can, the, the, the thrill of breaking them is, is part of why music is exciting. And um, it's an experience and, and certainly a, 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 core, a core language that, that I think we, can, we, all, we all love to kind of create together. And um, those aesthetic experiences, those emotional experiences that humans can share, they do take, a, take us out of the place and time. They do bring us together. I, I remember going, you know, when I was playing at clubs in the early 90s after college when I was kind of a directionless artist <laughs> before I got into the world of publishing, I, I played these clubs and there were, you know, all kinds of you know, places with chicken wire around the band so beer <laughs> bottles didn't hit you. But you, you'd play us, you know, sometimes it was just a cover song or, you know, people would connect with you all types and you didn't i don't know you didn't care about their political beliefs or the religious beliefs you were you were just enjoying this aesthetic moment mm -hmm. and i think that's the beauty of art that's the beauty of theater of music of literature there are people that you know people i disagree with on social media but then we talk about a jim croce song and we're so excited about it sure. and I, you know so i don't know if there's any larger philosophical uh, point to this other than it, yes, this, those aesthetic experiences do bring us together. We need more but, of them. But I th yeah, but I think that's the that's the issue for me is that if um, if we're at this inflection point, right? If we've you know, and I, I've said this before, we've got these two massive generations of people. You know, we have baby boomers and we have millennials, and you know, as Generation X people, we're stuck in the middle. You know, we are the, the, you know, the bridge generation or the, you know, the, the squeeze generation where we're taking care of our aging parents, you know, and end of life and we're, we're raising kids. Is there a natural affinity for that um, balancing different points of view because of 
the generation that we are. We're smaller. Um, we maybe have been through a, a, a weird kind of cycle of ups and downs economically, financially. Does it make us better at that or does it make us worse at it? That's a great question. I mean, I always think about the macro forces that are affecting generational mindsets. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I always bring up, you know, George Bernard Shaw, the <laughs> author. He lived mm-hmm. from, I want to say, 1850 to around... 1950, maybe maybe a little bit. So I think he died in his late 90s, mm-hmm. um, almost 100 years old. You, you see the things he saw and the major changes, you know, from mm-hmm. from from a, the civil engineering feats of the 19th century to the communication feats to flying, you know, uh, you know what what a what a a portfolio of changes that would affect um, you know kind of people who, who saw that. So getting back to your question, you know, what we have seen and, 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 and the, the ways in which people communicate, you know, we, we witnessed, we grew up when there was no internet, suddenly we were all connected. That's something we, we, we experienced that shift. Has mm-hmm. it changed the way we see the world? Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, doesn't every generation think in some ways they're a transitional generation? M- maybe, but, but, um, Maybe there is something to that generation Xer who kind of came of age in the in the in the eighties, early nineties, and then saw profoundly different ways of of communicating. I mean, there's, there's got to be something there. I mean, I wish I was delving into this as a sociologist because I think there's a lot to chew on. Well, I go back to you know as a generation to to quote a generation X album. You know, Ben Folds Five has that album, whatever and ever. Amen. And I, and there is a certain kind of a dismissive cynical side of Gen X where it's, you know, you, you have that type of feel like, you know, things are beyond my control, but, but I do get the feeling that that having grown up without a device in our hand and understanding that, and then seeing just how amazingly connected our kids are. Um, there is a profound difference. And I was in China maybe 10 years ago and uh, was waiting for a, a setup of, a, of a, a video that we were doing. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at a little kid who's got a dump truck. And it looks like a dump truck you would see going down your neighborhood. It's a, it's a yellow dump truck. You could, you could draw it from memory. And he's playing on a mound of dirt. And yet he's, he's in a hutong. You know, he's in the stone little village in you know in in a neighborhood in Beijing and he's just playing and it hit me like a ton of bricks you know my kids can see that in a way I never could you know they'll have an immediacy to that and kids are kids and they don't blink that you know with the idea that they're they're talking to somebody from another part of the world on Xbox or or, Mm -hmm. you know PS4 or whatever it is um What's the opportunity of that? I mean, you're you're coming in contact with so many amazingly smart people, and you know, science is about connecting. You know, it's about it's about finding patterns. What do you see as the opportunity here um, in in getting to these kids in 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 helping to show the advantage of this? And and what are the challenges of that? You know, I think technology like. What do they say? It's like this Faustian bargain. It brings mm-hmm. things, it takes things away, it you know, changes. Um, 
and we can't take that for granted. But I, but you know, the opportunity of in this kind of flattened world, mm-hmm. you know, what is the purpose of innovation, of science, of technology? I mean, I I, I think it is constantly trying to make sure we are a more equitable society and world um, that we have a, a way to share experiences more readily and more relevantly and to be able to you know like I was saying earlier you know the, the collaboration that that's felt even among among you know, among scientists and researchers mm-hmm. uh, globally brings them together if we if we can use the the opportunity is of course you know using technology and human wherewithal for 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 the benefit of everyone to take advantage of of good ideas mm. um you know against bouncing around a bit we came of age when this monolithic music industry would decide what music would be widespread and profitable and what music would just be played in your basement and of course the mm-hmm. digital revolution I think changed that for for, for in, a, in, a, in a lot of good ways. I mean, you you can now produce something. It doesn't have to be music. It could it could be any art or writing, and it can be shared, you know, to millions of people instantaneously. And and and, mm. and the good stuff will will will, will shine. And you you, you know, um, using that technology, using that ability to universally connect. I think it is a good thing. I mean, on the other side, we're certainly overloaded with messages. And again, it's a generation that is so 24-7 connected. Do they have time for quiet self-reflection or can they feel that void of not connecting? And is that does that void help you? I mean, again, uh, going back to if you feel lonely, you're going to do something to combat that. Yeah. Playing guitar, write a poem. If you never feel lonely – that might that could be a bad thing if something doesn't inspire you to to break that alienation mm-hmm. so it's complex but i think you know the opportunity certainly is to to use human the human wherewithal the technologies that we have uh to be able to connect people better share universal experiences for the benefit of art for the benefit of science certainly for the benefit of 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 humanity under understanding each other. Um, so how do you do that? You know, in, in a world, you know, I remember um, as a kid, I had an encyclopedia and if it was in the encyclopedia, um, it was fact. I never opened the encyclopedia and said, well, I, you know, I doubt the efficacy of a giraffe. Um, it was what it was. Um, <laughs> and I, I, n- I never doubted it. It was, it was an immutable truth. Kids don't have that. You know, they have this pressure to believe things that aren't true coming from, in some cases, you know, extremely, you know, big authority figures. I mean, this administration is a a textbook example. What's happening now with certifying an election, which is usually a, you know, a boring, uh, uninteresting piece of, you know, bureaucratic paperwork. Um, Why is that happening? You know, what what can you do? You know, you think about the official office of the president and the duties there to make sure that, you know, facts are given to the American people. It's not unlike, you know, the the official official media brands like the Encyclopedia Britannica mm-hmm. or Scientific American. Mm-hmm. You know, 
there is a responsibility that comes with, okay, are you going to be a platform of communication? And, and, and you need to make sure that you've got your facts straight. The problem, I, as I see it, and I'm not, you know, um, a policy expert uh, on this subject, but the fact is that when you are in an era where everyone is basically their own media, can, can be their own media brand, mm. the idea of what in the old days you trusted a media brand to do was to vet those facts. Um, it's okay that there are platforms where people share opinions. There's no lack of opinions now, but but I th- I'm, I'm hoping the pendulum is going to shift back a little bit where there's maybe more of a discerning desire to uh, you know desire to to be more discerning in the media brands people go to flock to for for uh, for news and for perspective that is mm-hmm. informed more by fact you know i remember in the earliest days of social media as someone in the publishing field realizing that every brand whether it was your waffle company mm-hmm. or your shampoo that was saying you know like us on facebook you know follow us on twitter yeah um, they they become publishing brands. They become a source of content. I mean, I may not want to check in with my waffle company every day, or nor do I know what news they're going to put out. Presumably, it would be about new flavors of waffles. But the fact is, you have so many streams of content to take advantage of, to pay attention to, to engage with. Some merely to entertain, some to inter- some to inform whether it's a, a very vertical uh, interest you have, and that's that's that that's a great thing. But then there are those types of media entities, and again, this is you know where I sit as the publisher of Scientific American, where people you know go to because they want vetted, credible information that has been fact checked and is put together in a way that's you know. It helps people understand the world. I'd like to think there's a need for that more than ever, as the world events in the past nine, ten months has made it clear people, you know, need science. They need timely information about science and healthcare. Um, policy decisions need to be made by uh, scientific you know, leadership informing, informing those decisions. So with, if, if I were to say there's a silver lining to what has been an absolute horrible situation, you know, reminding people facts matter, they yeah. matter on a day-to-day basis. And we need to be, we need to take the role of those who are in a position to give scientific health related facts. You know, we, th- that's a big responsibility. It is. And I, and I, you know, there's there's Anthony Fauci. Tony Fauci is, you know, he's got that great accent. You know, he's got that like, you know, what are you doing? And and then he says these things that are so commonsensical that in, in any other environment, most people would just say, well, of course, you know, <laughs> and, and he has this exasperated look on his face. Like, I can't believe I have to explain this. Um, how important is it for um people like that to get a bigger voice and how do we how do we do that when the first thing that people who are great at disinformation do is to say don't trust anything but what i say that is such an essential part of how to fix the 
war on science is getting more visibility and plat and, and you know give, giving people that have facts to share that are experts in a field giving them a platform without this phony idea that what they're, what they're saying you know has has a has a natural counterpart and the idea of of both sidism uh you know uh you know in in in, in any any other field if you're a political reporter Yes, you always need to find the opposing opinion. I mean, in, in science, certainly you want all perspectives, but but the weight of those perspectives in any article, feature piece, has to be in line and be commensurate with the number of scientists and their credibility on that other side. So the mm-hmm. idea of we have to represent all sides of of a debate on climate. I mean, that's just that's just silly. Um, so, so you know, I. The, the practice of science can't be completely apolitical because you know it takes nothing on faith. Hmm. Science, by its nature, it doesn't fear or favor any single human being or group, and thus the knowledge it produces almost invariably upsets the status quo. Right, well, challenging yeah. whoever depends on that status quo for staying in power. So, you know, we need to make sure that that. For, for it to remain as apolitical as possible, those people with real expertise have a voice. Well, this is this the first time I saw this. The first time it hit me, like, um, oh no, we've taken a strange turn. Was that I watched the media cover uh, a presidential election, and the 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 most pertinent question that they had was, "Would I like to have a beer with this guy?" And you know, I always say that I, I've spent twenty five, thirty years. Um, surrounded by scientists and engineers and thinkers and and truthfully they're people that you only want to hang out with in a round room because if they get you in a corner they're deadly <laughs> you know they they will corner you and tell you about the most technical things you know a guy who tells you about the quality of light and why as a as a scientist who studied light he became a paint expert and i love oh. this guy he was like a demented santa claus and i went around the world with him and he loved light but it was technical and I didn't understand half of what he said, but that's what they're supposed to do. <laughs> they're supposed yeah. to be smarter than me. They're supposed <laughs> to make me go away with my head spinning a little bit. So how do you, how do you break that? I don't, I don't want a surgeon who is just affable, but okay at cutting open a human body. You know, <laughs> I, I want the guy who's good with a knife um, just like I want my mechanic to be good with the car. Um, when did that start to to happen? And and how how much responsibility sits with the media for asking these questions and promoting this kind of uh, kind of knee jerk um, equal time? It's a great question. The role of the media to entertain certainly been explored by people like Marshall McLuhan and, and Neil Postman. You know, Neil Postman used to ask, why does news need music? Right? Why do you need a theme song to the nightly news? Why are we trying to entertain people? Uh, and, you know, news, of course, is a business. I mean, I my brand is a business. And, and mm-hmm. so you always have to be careful when you talk about bias and what's driving this. I mean, does a, head, does a headline, is a headline clickbaity? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have to always there's always need some checks and balances because you know it, it, it is a business but to your point about who you want to have a 
beer with. <laughs> yeah, you're you're supposed to. It's it's okay to let people in to get them interested in something without turning them off because in the beginning it's too challenging. But I think the role of good science or health media is, you know, getting people comfortable with some ideas they may not be well-versed in, Mm. but helping them understand. And, you know, you don't have to have a PhD in nuclear physics or or biochemistry. Um, But if you can understand there's some complexity here and, and be, certainly be, yes, be entertained by that, but also, you know, you can understand the world and all its complexity by challenging yourself a little to, to give some time to ideas that are, are not necessarily um, so familiar to you. I mean, that, that's the role of, I think, good science media. Yes, it has to let people in, but, but, but you know, the, the environment now of everything has to echo our own opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always happy when people that don't have my opinion you know, say, look, I, I'm, I'm open to reading something, and if it actually changes my opinion, you know, I think the media does a good job when it can show people with with evidence and facts, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, give them a point of view. I know, I know, studies have shown that those don't always work, you know, but but yeah. um, there's just so much content out there. It's just hard to have anyone's attention. If, you, if I get eight minutes of someone's day to, to pay attention to an article, I feel like we've we've won. Well, there's a, there's a piece in here that I've always said, which is that you know the 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 ongoing kind of um, wisdom is that you know content is king, and I and I disagree with that. I think that context is king. I think there's too much content that is undifferentiated, and if you can set a context on something, then you can help people understand how to come into the debate or the discussion. And the one that's getting me now, as the son of a welder who you know eventually became a nuclear welder and was a general foreman to build nuclear power plants so he had a journey from you know clear hardcore blue collar through this entire process of science and he ended his mm. career kind of in a in a very different place but you know the the dignity of work the dignity of you know somebody who is on a manufacturing line or somebody who you know fixes things um, or builds homes that's in a lot of ways the the left has kind of left that behind you know they 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 talk about this shift to a service economy and and there's there's nobody there who's who's talking to these people and saying there there are very many different types of knowledge and intelligence you know my my father-in-law owned an engine and machine shop and he uh you know, he he designed the 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 first um, ravioli maker for a uh, a very prominent pasta maker in wow. the Philadelphia area. He just designed it. They said we don't know how to make raviolis at an industrial rate, and he's like, "Well, hold on," and he, he just built it, and they gave it to him. Same guy who you know built his own boat and then uh, out of wood in his, in Southwest Philly and took it out on the ocean. That's a, that's amazing. Scaling ravioli. I mean, what we can learn yeah. from that. Oh, well, I mean, I you know, if that. you think about a guy in 1960s who's you know says, okay, scaling ravioli, and but those people and the knowledge that they have and the and the intrinsic intelligence isn't really promoted. We don't really talk about that. I always say that you know intelligence is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. How do how do we do that? That's a wonderful um, wonderful example of it, by the way. And you know, we've we've published articles. One of them, uh, Howard Gardner at Harvard talked about the multiplicity of intelligence, and there's not one necessarily one thing that measures it. And and, and you're right. I mean, 
there are again forces that are at play that are probably um, some big macro forces. I, I feel in this country we don't honor the value of work the way they do, say in in, in European countries. Um, Mm-hmm. You're, you're you're considered a cog, and, and what intelligence can you have? You're, you're part of this big machine, and so there's probably other forces there, but just the, the sheer ingenuity uh, of someone on a, on a on a production line, etc. I mean, being able to take advantage of that and capture that more, I think we've done probably a horrible job of that, and I can understand part of the unease in this country is our relationship with those in you know different work environments. Um, <clears throat> I. I I don't know the answer, but I do know getting back to what I know best, which is connecting with audiences. We we probably have to do a better job of <clears throat> showcasing stories from 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 assembly lines and 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 the 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 ingenuity and intelligence in in spheres that don't get celebrated enough. I think it's a great point you make. Well, so there's there's two things. One. Um one I'll talk about that happened, you know, 40 years ago and then one that happened a few years ago. So the 40 years ago was that um, I <laughs> I was supposed to go to college. That was the one kind of thing that my parents said to me. You can do whatever you want, but you're going to get a university degree because I was the first person who had ever gone to college. It was kind of a foregone conclusion. But they never stopped me from taking shop classes. So I took small gas engines. I took woodworking one. I took woodworking two. I took um, metalworking where I learned how to make a shift because, you know, in metalworking, if something doesn't work, you, you know, all the kids I was with turned it into a knife. Um, and these were kids that were, that were listed at the bottom of the rung academically. But if you put them in a room and you said, okay, now solve this problem, they knew how to make things. They could figure stuff out, Yeah, you know, and- And I loved those classes because it used a completely different side of my brain. Just walking in there and seeing the teacher, whose name was Mackenzie Mack. And yes, he did have a finger missing. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) he was very stereotypical. Straight from central casting. He was great. And he would hold it up and say, you know, look, and my friend John actually put his hand on a bandsaw and, you know, cut the very center of his uh, pointy finger. And he made John go around and show everybody. But what Mac did was the dignity of making something and the pride of making something and putting it out there and say, you know, physically, this will last for decades. And I made that stayed with me. You know, I would take apart a telephone to see how it worked. How do we bring that back? Um, and and then you know as after that I'll, I'll we'll we'll talk about this this issue with the sandpaper that we were talking before the you know before the mic was turned on. So tell me how do we bring that back? How do we allow a really intelligent you know college oriented kid who's great at studying to be thrown in a different environment where they've got to learn you know how to do something like that? And then how do we value that kid who just intrinsically has that intelligence to make something and say he or she is just as valuable? I think this is another opportunity to leverage our, you know, our digital media technologies for the for the good of 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 society. Telling these stories. I mean, we did a we did a program where we had kids. You make a rocket with nothing more than a little one of those little plastic, you know, film canisters mm-hmm. and Alka Seltzer, and we had them. See who could who could do a rocket that 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 you know went the furthest, most creative rocket. It was user generated content. It was one of one of our most popular media partnerships with um. You know, it was sponsored by by Bear, who actually make Alka Seltzer, but it was a it was a STEM initiative. It was a creative STEM initiative that that we 
you know, um, partnered and collaborated with them on. And it was a celebration of people and their just unique insights. It wasn't like you had to be a scientist to do this, or you had to be a Harvard graduate. You could be, you know, a 14 year old kid. Um, I loved that project because it celebrated the ingenuity. You know, small stories can become big stories quickly in the media, this media environment. And so that's not a bad thing. I mean, we were part of the Google Science Fair. We had a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of a contest for, for kids to make unique things. And this one, one high schooler whose father, grandfather had Alzheimer's created this way, like tied a wire around his, 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 his sock or something to, or, or, put a sensor in his sock to know if he was walking in the middle of the night and getting up. <laughs> it was so creative. And, you know, to your point, there's, there's so many unique stories across the world of, of, of kids whose, whose ingenuity is probably not celebrated and probably not, you know, held up as, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be on this maybe PhD track, but I, I, I still believe media has, a role and an opportunity and a chance to be an equalizer to help bring these stories to people. So, I mean, again, I'm coming at it from, from my perspective. I'm not an educational theorist, mm-hmm. but I'd like to think that if you, if we could celebrate these stories, if we can go back and celebrate, you know, Carmen and, and all your, 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 your shop mates making unique things, we, we, we could, we could use, our, our platforms as you know to to to, to do that so I, I'm well, hoping there's a chance to do that well I, I hope so and and you know for me the I, I tried to explain to somebody how I view the the opportunities of of a, of a digital world and the easiest way for me to explain it uh, is that this this technology collapses time and space so that you know I can make people who are thousands of miles away feel, like they are next to each other. And then we can extend the time that experiences can happen far beyond when we're available. So those two things, if you think about technology in those terms, it makes it very easy to decide how to focus a technology. And, you know, I, the, the story that I have um, from a, a sandpaper factory that I just found fascinating because it, 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 it shows how people can keep their kind of childlike wonder is that, uh, you know, sandpaper has holes in it so that, you know, a lot of it so that when you sand with like a belt sander, the dust comes through the sandpaper and they were having trouble with this high end sandpaper that's used for, you know, really precise things. Um, and one of the people who was a young engineer decided that he would reach back to an Italian mathematician named Fibonacci and take his sequence, which is, um, it looks like the, um, the spiral of a galaxy or the way that a rose works or a sunflower, that kind of curve that, you know, loops out. And he replicated that and it worked better than anything else. And when he started to explain it to people like, well, why did you choose that pattern? He said, well, there's this Italian mathematician and, I kind of went back and said, well, what are all the things that that person has to do to be in a position to offer that idea? And can we replicate that? 
because in the back of my mind, the theory that I have is that this revolution that has to happen isn't, you know, the reason why we can't see this giant revolution that's happening around the opportunity of moving humanity forward is because we're in the middle of it. And it's not one big thing that, you know, changes mankind. It's like a thousand little things. So I, I refer to it as an evolution revolution. And the question that I have for you is, you know, how do you replicate that this person went to school, they had an interest in history, they had an interest in science, they love this ratio, it stayed in the back of their mind for a decade or more, and then they saw this opportunity and they pulled it forward. Because I see that happen all the time, especially with people who work with their hands. You know, they migrate a practice from woodworking into metalworking or from mechanics into, you know, uh, uh, home renovation. Yeah. You know, how do you promote that? I, I love that story. It's the hands-on experience. I mean, I was talking to uh, to the Nobel laureate Craig Mello at an event a few years ago, and you know, his his insight into RNA and 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 and, and interfering with with you know um, RNA in a cell. But but he he attributed his scientific insight. You know, he he as a, as a little boy in Virginia, he would look under rocks at the microscopic environment that he saw. And he would, you know, just walk in the woods and have these hands-on experiences that were, that were so, to him, so stimulating. And he, you know, years later as a, as a major noted scientist, he always kind of felt like that was his inspiration. Um, mm. I was also speaking to um, another award-winning scientist, Lou, Louis Cantley, and and he, uh, you know, was saying he, his father inspired him by always saying, "Well, let's figure out how this works," as opposed to "This is yeah, that's just the way God intended." I mean, he, mm -hmm. he these 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 early experiences, um, hands-on experiences of seeing how things work. There's there's it's such an important part of the scientific mind, but but it also can it doesn't have to be. Um, Again, a, a Nobel laureate. It, it, it's these these insights, and if I think you raise a good question, you know, how do we? Because I'm kind of obsessed with how to create, you know, optimal conditions for innovation and mm -hmm. for humanity to share that. And and you know, um, I think you know, a going back to my point earlier, using these stories as a source of inspiration, you know, for, for other folks. But also to make to, to have society value these 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 insights in this process and make it something that people can relate to. I mean, they they feel like the scientific process is so so distant from them when they read about famous breakthroughs. Mm. But, but all the people making these big breakthroughs were inspired by small little things, you know, like you you note the revolutions come from little little adventures, little little bits of insight. Mm -hmm. um, so so the more we can celebrate those and, and, and make people feel like they can be a part of it, you know, going back to this idea of, of the, the big, the big revolutions in science are shifts in thinking, but also they, they were because you know, some of them, ha a lot of them happened because of small little innovations with tools and, 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 you know, being able to see the universe better because of a little innovation in a lens on a microscope uh, or a telescope and, 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 you know, seeing the the microscopic world again mm -hmm. slowly because the tools we can see better these are these are tinkerers these are inventors these are in some cases people just trying to you know use ingenuity 
at hand. Um, but but yeah. there, but there's something else about them though, and this is the thing that I, I this is the gap. This is this is the big bridge where things where the spark ignites, and it's people who have a technical scientific expertise who can also tell a story. And I, you know, my son is uh, had to choose a um, a topic for his uh, his AP literature class. And he chose the hero's journey as seen through the Hobbit. And that was his phrase, the hero's journey. And I said, well, have you read Joseph Campbell? And he hadn't. And, you know, Joseph Campbell is a guy who invented an entire discipline. You know, he, he, he invented this, uh, this kind of interdisciplinary mythology where, you know, all myths share certain characteristics. But a lot of it came back to the fundamental mechanics of telling a story you know, uh, dramatic tension sure, and sure. the ability to, you know, kind of have that, uh, that resolution. And when I talk to great scientists, you know, the one that was doing RNA work, um, you know, creating the cleanest clean room in the discussion, what we came down to is essentially this RNA adjustment, um, where you take a cell from a tumor and put it in a healthy cell and reintroduce that into the body. Um, the body can't see cancer because it, it can't differentiate itself. But if you do this process, it's like you flick the lights on and then the body sees this intruder and can attack it using its own immune system. And it was such an elegant little thing that um, we, we, we put it into um, that, uh, that song, um, kind of a spiritual song called uh, This Little Light of Mine. Sure. Yeah. And if, and if you can talk about that, you know, don't hide your light in a bushel, you know, let it out. Why is that so important? You know, is it that people remember stories? Are we hardwired to, to process stories differently than we do facts? I, I think so. I mean, I think that's why, again, successful media bringing people complex ideas, you know, uses metaphor, uses the dramatic tension. I do mm -hmm. think, I do think we're hardwired to, to kind of understand the world that way through a bit of a narrative experience, which again, doesn't mean you have to hide the complexity of, of, of the science or a story, mm -hmm. uh, but, 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 you know, absolutely make, have people feel, you know, vested in it, have it make sense, have them inspire their curiosity through that. Well, nobody, Absolutely. nobody comes home though, right? Nobody comes home from work and says, you know, uh, let me show you slide 42 of this great PowerPoint that I saw. <laughs> like that never happens. <laughs> it's so true. So, it's so true. So how, how do you, you know, when I, when I look at your role and I think about who you are, you know, and by the way, I just want everybody to know, Jeremy also has a Christmas album. So, you know, if you're, if you're interested, you should really you know, tune into that one because I love it. Um, but you know, when somebody who, who can do all of these different things, um, who can bounce across, you know, a narrative discipline, a highly technical scientific discipline, a music discipline, how do you structure your interests? How do you kind of, you know, all we have is time, right? Our big decision is how we spend our time. How do you do that? You know, how do you make priorities and how and how important is that role of demonstrating storytelling ability and connecting that's a great question um 
I like to think, getting back to this idea of the universal concepts, you know, the, the passion I have in everything I do, and it, it connects elements of my day. So mm-hmm. my my passion for music and, and and evoking an emotional response to connect with people, you know, informs even the most mundane things like a business meeting or mm-hmm. even an internal meeting to 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 motivate the team. You know, you're right. There's just we have so many roles in, in life as 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 say parents or caregivers or uh, you know colleagues. Certainly, um, I, I it is it's a great question because time is a unique a unique entity right now as we're all home during this pandemic and time is either flying for some people or it's just staying put. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, end of year you have these business exigencies in, in Q4 that you have to get done. And it's just, it's just a lot, but I, I like I, I go back to, you know, what motivates me is I like to inspire people. I think that, you know, I think that one's day as busy as it is, is always nice when they feel like the work they do ultimately help, helps the world, mm-hmm. um, helps people connect, helps people understand some of the most important things. That's a motivating factor for me. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, there's just so much "quote unquote" noise out there. You, know, you think about Anthony Fauci. I just recently did an interview where he talked about what he does all day, and he gets up at five thirty, and he you know, does emails, and he goes and he has his White House meetings. I mean, it's it's insane. So I'm, yeah. I'm happy to not be that busy. But well, we're, we're, yeah. <laughs> well, and you right? see him sometimes. You see him like you know out in front of the White House. Just, you know, somebody puts a camera on him, and he just has this look in his face, like. Ugh. <laughs> exactly That's- right. I know, I know, but I do think, and again, I hope, I hope, hoping he's motivated by 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 his role and and wanting to you know certainly help the world and mm-hmm. and and if we if everyone can just wake up and feel motivated in some small way that they're going to make a difference in the people's lives that they touch that day, I think it's a huge motivating factor. Yeah. Um, it certainly is for me. It certainly connects the dots between what I do as, as, as a musician. And I've certainly tried to put that A in STEM, you know, STEAM, arts and mm-hmm. science. We've even at Scientific American starting up some things that are arts related, which is a few things I'm spearheading. It just, it, it motivates me in, in all facets of my, of my life. And, um, you know, again, helps to remind me, why we do what we do and why we, why we're, you know, I'm, I'm certainly proud to lead the commercial fortunes of a media brand that I think has a huge place in society, particularly now. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it does. And I think that that's the, the, the part that I'm, you know, I have a lot of very talented friends who put up with me. And I, and I think the thing that I, I like about you or Dan or Joel Trinidad, who's, you know, this great relief worker around the world right. is that, um, it, there is an approach that is humble, um, but passionate, you know, Joel, um, his birthday was two days ago and he sent a picture last week and he works in a VA hospital and he, uh, is, uh, he's a nurse and he's, you know, he's treated, you know, uh, pandemics in, in Liberia and he's, you know, helped people with, uh, you know, and during the Banda Aceh tsunami, all these things. And I saw him suited up in complete, you know, medical riot gear to go into a COVID unit. And he said, you know, this is my day. And I, you know, veterans have enough problems and they're, yeah. And, and I'm here to add whatever value I can. That's my purpose. And so the thing I'm going to end with is really around 
the purpose of this podcast is to connect. The purpose of putting people from different backgrounds is to show, you know, why it matters to have humanity behind your actions. So in this environment with COVID, with climate change, with misinformation and fake news, so what? The questions that I always end with is so what and now what? So, so what that all of this is happening? What does it mean to live in this time? What can you say to people that might be kind of thought provoking or what do you think about being uh, in the position that you're in during this point in history? It's these human stories that move people day to day. And um, I like to say, you know, every, every data point has a human face Mm. and we are seeing horrifying numbers every day with this surge upon a surge. Mm. It's reminding people of our collective humanity and there is a need in this world for so many things, for art, for, for, for certainly for faith, for those that, that take comfort mm. in that. But there's also not just room for science, but it is more important than ever for people to say, you know, we need to embrace facts. We need to not fight about things as simple as, you know, masks or what can protect us. I mean, there's always going to be policy debates and the limits of, of this, but we can't we can't debate the, the clear facts and we can't there there can't be a war on expertise the way mm-hmm. there has been. So I think you know it's I I'm seeing signs optimistically of people stepping back and saying, you know, we need we need to solve this together. Mm-hmm. So you know, I love the theme of the podcast. Love the fact that you're bringing people together. I love the work that you know Joel and nurses are doing, and people on the front lines. It's just it's awe inspiring. It's it's so humbling. But like I said earlier, you know, um, just like after World War II, there was such a steadfast focus on how could we set up some things in society with this. Well, this can't happen again. You know, not that bad wars didn't happen, but you know, NATO and and you know, mm-hmm. I think this is going to be the one of the biggest teaching moments globally. And if we could take from this the good, the embracing of those that are trying to help the world with scientific expertise, uh, with that collective idea that we we all we all have each other's back. Uh, you know, that to me, it, it's always been certainly the the. The, the point of science and science communication, but out of this travesty, seeing, hearing these stories, can we find our collective humanity and, and, and some renewed spirit of doing this together? I like to think that that was, that will happen. I'm, I'm seeing it happen. I think. Well, this is so, you know, I go back to that statement that came out of the Nuremberg trials, you know, the banality of evil. And there's a there's a, a story that I've seen several times now in the media from South Dakota. And by the way, you know, both Joel and uh, and somebody else I interviewed uh, have lived in South Dakota, and they're they're amazing people. Uh, very isolated, not many people separated by you know lots of distance. But um, it's it's the tragedy of misinformation. There are people who are with you know have oxygen masks. They're about to be intubated, and they are saying, "How can I feel this way? This is a hoax." This is not real. There isn't something called COVID as they're dying of COVID. And the tragedy of misinformation is that somebody is sitting there and still 
because it's been so effective, this misinformation, they can't even while they're being killed by this thing, acknowledge that it's real. And that's got to be a lesson as much as the banality of evil is, this tragedy of misinformation. And if there's something we can take forward, you know, that's what I'm looking forward to. So, so now what? Who does this, Jeremy? I mean, you know, we were looking for the adults in the room. And if you're, you know, if you're looking around and you can't figure it out, it's you. And if you can't find them, you're the adult in the room. I think that that image, and I've heard conflicting stories about how much that has happened. Some some of some of it obviously, you know, real and some of it a little overblown, but but certainly mm-hmm. to your point, I think there is a tragedy of misinformation. And I think um this has all been a way to throw down an incredibly huge and loud gauntlet to say mm-hmm. it is it is the adults in the room, it is those who are responsible for 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 you know curating information to to use a cliche now, but to to how do we look at this even now with a bit of a, a historical perspective and a and an eye toward the future to make sure we don't have misinformation on this scale happening again mm-hmm. and it will be through the levers of policy through you know uh, i th- i hope a renewed attention to fact based media and um you know humans we are in charge of our destiny it's not preordained that the planet is just going to exist and you know uh, you know even even the idea of a nation state you know mm-hmm. uh, is is we have to work to to keep this just just ask a trojan right <laughs> um so i well, that's I, the I, new campaign ask a yeah, trojan i mean ask a trojan i so i i i think i think um you know where we go from here is we need to embrace the gauntlet that has been thrown down and say it is now time to rebuild and make sure what has happened can't happen again in in this way well and this is so this is a great lesson is um you know i i i have a relative who is very conservative uh he's a business person um he you know he spouses small government all of those things he got covid and was devastated by it you know he is a long yeah. hauler yeah he carries so much credibility in the conservative circles in mm-hmm. which he travels because he is a conservative and he is pro-science. You know, he happens to have a political science degree. He understands how, how, how that system works. He is one of the best advocates because he's inside the house. Sure, sure. And I think that's the key for me that I hope with, you know, as we move out of COVID. Um, so I'm going to flash forward. I wanna, I'm going to end it on, on this. If you, if you flash forward a, a year, 18 months from now, what's your hope? Where do you, where do you want to see us? I, to, to your point, I, I'd like to, to, to see more productive, less vitriolic dialogue between people that can disagree on policy, but, but, but can agree on the science of things. Mm-hmm. And let me say, you know, anti-science stances are not just, you know, they know not one political mm-hmm. uh, uh, area. I mean, certainly a, a huge portion of the anti-vax movement was, was people on the left. Mm-hmm. So um, I, 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 I would love to see us disagreeing respectfully and disagreeing while sitting on a bed of facts that we all agree on, mm-hmm. that to me is a picture of the near nearish future 
that I like to see to say, you know what? There are things, there are major points that we, we can disagree on a lot of stuff, but we all know this, you know, X, Y, Z is true. Mm. And, 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 and these people are experts and we should listen to them. We can't, you know, disagree about someone's credentials. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'd love to see us disagreeing on a bed of facts that we agree on. Well, I, I think that's a perfect place to, to end. Um, a bed of facts that we can agree on. Jeremy, thank you so much. Um, I, I knew this was going to be an interesting discussion and I, um, I am fascinated by the world that you, uh, that you move through. Uh, and, and frankly, the way that you do it, it's, uh, it's done with intelligence and humor and, uh, you make me proud. Um, I, I thank you for saying that and right back at you. It's a pleasure to be here and be speaking to you, a guy I really enjoy talking to and we, we need to talk more. Exactly. We'll take that offline uh, for everybody else. Uh, if you've got uh, some questions of Jeremy, uh, let us know. If you have ways to improve the podcast, um, we're always interested. And if you have somebody that you think we should absolutely talk to, please let me know. So that's all the time we have. I'm Carmen Farino, and I hope you tune into another edition of the Allies podcast. Thank you. Thank you.